as you continue to visit with this freedom that is present right now, right here, it may occur to you the difference between this taste of freedom and the ideas we have of personal freedom. That the freedom that you're now or that is now available to you is different than the freedom of your personal desires, aims, or ambitions. Many people mistake inner freedom for personal freedom. And when we make this mistake, we are most likely to think that freedom is the result of changing something external to ourselves. Or, or even changing something internal. Because in our notions of personal freedom, there's a sense that something is binding you or imprisoning you. And it could be a relationship, it could be a, 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 an obligation, it could be a, a task, a condition that you're facing in the outer environment, such as the weather. Or you could see it as something internal, like an emotion, or a thought, or a sensation in your body, something that you feel is limiting you, preventing you from being free. And in our quest for personal freedom, we will often seek to change that condition or circumstance so that we can be free. But this activity of changing the environment or changing what we're feeling is not free at all. And so we often arrive at a kind of impasse, a place that's hard for our consciousness to penetrate, where we see freedom as a possibility. We, free, we feel freedom as a possibility. And yet, whatever we do to try to cultivate that, acquire that, or find that, we don't feel free. So the freedom that we're touching upon here is not the freedom of, I can do what I want. It's great if you have that luxury. It's also not the freedom of, I can think what I want or say what I want. And that, those are great freedoms as well. But the freedom we touch on here is a freedom that is deeper than personal. And what makes it truly free is that it's available to all, always. Because it doesn't depend on what condition you're in, what state of mind, what's going on around you, 
what other people are doing. It doesn't depend on what you think, what you feel, or what's going on in your body. In order for freedom to truly be free, it must be absolutely free. And for freedom to be absolutely free, it must be free of all conditions that we define it by. And that's where personal freedom differs from inner freedom. Because personal freedom always has some kind of condition. I'm free if. I'm free when. I'm free if this negative feeling is gone. I'm free if my boss isn't on my back. I'm free if I can go on vacation. And those freedoms, again, they're all very lovely. I mean, we would all prefer to have those freedoms. But they're not requirements for inner freedom at all. And as soon as we recognize that, we're free. Because in part, what we're free of is the constant need to be changing and manipulating and altering circumstances so that we can get where we want to be, so we can have what we want or feel what we want. I'm not against personal freedom at all. I don't see it as a problem. I just see it as limited in that it doesn't give us what it is we really want. You know, we look at the person who, let's say, they live a, a relatively free life. Let's say we work a 40-hour work week and we have kids and we have a pet and we have a house and we have bills. And we see someone who lives out of their van and they travel around and they can shoot down into the sun, sunshine if they feel like it or they can wander wherever they want to wander. And we might look at a life like that. We might think, oh, that's freedom. But if you really inquire into the life of a person who has such a freedom, you find there's very little freedom at all. If we inquire into personal freedom at all, we find there's very little freedom in it. Because often, what exists in personal freedom are a whole lot of conditions for how things need to be so that I'll feel free. And if we understand that, it's the very opposite of freedom. You know? I got to be free to do what I want. Great to be able to do what you want, but it doesn't make you free. Inner freedom exists when we are here in the deepest possible cooperation with what's right here, with what's right now. And we might define our circumstance as imperfect. You know, maybe our body doesn't feel, maybe we're a little tired today, or we're a little grumpy, or hungrier. You know, I could sit here and I could imagine a more optimal situation in a lot of ways for my body or any number of things. So we could compare it. We could say, well, it's not quite free yet. It's not quite enough yet. But the possibility for us is to drop into the freedom that exists within us now and always, which doesn't have a condition.
doesn't have a limitation. And when we know that freedom, we know it to be far greater than any kind of personal freedom at all. It doesn't even come close. It doesn't come close because when we're in, when we're in the trap of thinking that our personal freedom is freedom, we don't realize that we're trapped by our definitions. We're trapped by our conditions. We're trapped by the desires. So if we have a notion inside of ourselves that says, I, that says, I would be more free if I would be happier. I'd be more fulfilled if. We should seriously question that. No doubt there might be a, a temporary experience. You know, if you don't like the cold, gray weather and you go down to the sunshine, you might temporarily be delighted by it. But you'll find every reason to keep yourself agitated. You'll, keep yourself, you'll, you'll give yourself every reason to keep wanting something else or more or different or better. It never ends. It never ends. Personal, the, the quest for personal freedom doesn't have an end in freedom. It just has more pursuit. And that's why it's not free. Because even if you were to achieve personal freedom, let's say you actually got it. You actually got this experience of being free. What happens when the conditions change? You know? Because every condition will change. That's the law. And so when the condition changes, so the personal freedom will change also. But with inner freedom, it's not that way. With inner freedom, there's no if and when. There's no but. It's free right now. And if we understand this, we understand also the, the, the correlation with uh, the notion of free will. We think of our will as free when we can pursue what we want. But where did you get that want? Where did it come from? Did it come from the freedom in you? You know? We don't question that. So in a sense, what we're talking about here is the freedom to be what you really are, to exist within the knowing of your own deepest nature, always, and to let that freedom that you're aware of, to let it speak through you, to let it come into your actions, to let it live your life, you know? Because otherwise what we get in the quest for personal freedom is, is actually a slavery, it's a bondage. We think of it as pleasurable and good and fun, but it's not. It's actually painful. If we, if we really examine it, it's painful. And inner freedom is so simple. So simple. No conditions. If we have a condition for it, it's not inner freedom. So all we did in our meditation by relaxing is we, we, we divested ourselves of conditions. That's what happens when you relax, is you're free of conditions. 
and limitations. You may have felt that within that inner freedom there was a, an expansiveness that was possible, an openness or a spaciousness that was possible. You may have felt that, you may have known that. This points to the limitless possibility in us, that it's open, vast, expansive. What do you have to say? Do you have any ideas or questions for us? I quoted uh, in class, <clears throat> I often like to take the things that we're exploring in yoga class and just bring them in, into our environment right after. And I quoted a, a phrase from my teacher's teacher, a guy named Papaji. He said, take all of your desires, take everything you want, everything you desire, everything you could possibly want for yourself, and just channel all of those things into the single desire to be free. Just that single desire. Put all of the energy that you would want in this, this, or that, put it into the single desire to be free. And then let that live your life. You know? I think there's something actually kind of scary about that because if we would actually know freedom, because with, with freedom comes responsibility. There's a responsibility in being free. And it's a big one. It's a huge, it's a vast responsibility. There's something so big about freedom that it's actually intimidating to most of us. There's a, there's a way in which we often will reject it in favor of something that's a little bit more manageable, you know? Free, free, totally free. We can't even imagine what a free life would be like because if we imagined it, it wouldn't be free. <laughs> You know, it's a complete mystery, complete unknown that sits in front of us. And it's where real living exists. And considering setting some boundaries um, to kind of reduce my exposure to some things that I'm particularly sensitive to, <laughs> sort of a strategy, right? And we've talked about I'm reluctant to for exactly this reason. Good. Because it's a, it's a condition on contentment. But it's very appealing. Yes. To identify exactly what that is mm -hmm. and just uh, say, okay, I'm going to be aware of that. Yeah. And, you know, hold it at arm's length mm -hmm. and be more comfortable. Many years. And, and then it's conditional. Right. And then I have a dependency on that. Right. Many years ago, there was a gentleman who approached me and he was having some, some pretty intensive struggles in his, in his life. And he came and he asked me, can you give me a, a teaching or a uh, strategy whereby I can go around to my family and my friends and my coworkers and tell them how not to trigger me? <laughs> I said, good luck with that. <laughs> But it, it's, I mean, that's like an ultimate form of, of condition. Like, there's this idea we have in ourselves that if we, if we shape everything around us, nothing will disturb us. 
And, and it's in that very gesture, like you're saying, it's in that very gesture where we lose our freedom because it supposes that we can, you know, it goes back to that wonderful Buddhist analogy where the disciple asks the master how something about um, how do I deal with all of the problems in the world or something like that. And, and the master says, well, you can try to cover the world in leather or you can wear a pair of shoes, you know. And what we try to do is we try to cover the world in leather so we don't step on anything sharp ever, you know. But all of the endless amounts of energy that we pour out into to making things conditional, it binds us. And we don't, that's the thing we don't see. We don't see the bondage in trying to change everything, trying to shape everything so that we're not bothered or upset or hurt or, you know, yeah. I think it's very intelligent that that response comes in you because any time that we see ourselves moving to change conditions in some way, and there's many different ways of changing conditions, we should be really suspicious about that. Any time that we start tr making a connection between freedom, which is inner, and the external world, we should be suspicious about that because they're not, they're not nearly as linked as we think they are. But our, our psyche is designed that way. It's like this person's limiting me. This situation, it's limiting me. It's bothering me. It doesn't mean we don't change things in our life. It just doesn't mean we, it means, it just means we don't change them in the hopes that changing them will bring freedom. You can change anything in your life. Change your diet, change your relationship, change your job, change where you live, change your clothing, change your identity, change your name, change anything you want. Just don't believe that it's going to free you because it won't. None of it will. And I say that from experience because the life I grew up in and the life I know now are, are hardly alike in any way I can even imagine. And yet all of the changes I went about making in my life never brought freedom. Nothing. I changed the diet I grew up around. I changed my name. I changed... Uh, my lifestyle, I changed my environment, I changed my location, I changed just about everything you can possibly think of, and none of it ever brought freedom, ever. None of it. You know? If anything, the things we change bring about more bondage. You know, they bring about more, more of a constraint, more of a limitation. So, you know, when we talk about inner freedom, we have to be clear that we're not talking about changing anything. And I think that's where we go wrong often, is we really deeply believe that if we change something, it will lead to freedom. But we can work by the opposite model. We can realize inner freedom and then make a change, if necessary. That's a very different place to make a change from. It's an empowered place to make a change from. Right. 
right? So you change a condition and you get a, an apparent experience of freedom. And then there's this desire to hang on to it. There's this desire, once you've changed the thing, then it's like, well, let's hope it doesn't change back. <laughs> let's make sure it doesn't change, you know. Mm -hmm. And so then the energy, which we could call the energy of attachment, then the energy is to try to hold on to that condition. You know, like, let's say you, I don't know, you did a good job at work, you got a, a major bonus, it gave you some financial freedom, and you feel really good about that. There's certain things you can do now that you couldn't do before, but then you're worried about, well, what if it runs out? What if I don't get the same thing next year, you know? And so then, even, even with that apparent freedom, there's no freedom. That's how conditions are. Phenomenal conditions, worldly conditions. Even spiritual conditions are that way. Let's say you have an enlightenment experience and you, you burst wide open and you're blissful and you're ecstatic and you're clear and it feels so amazing and then you think to yourself, I don't want to lose this. <laughs> you know, it becomes a bondage. It becomes a bondage. It becomes a, a constraint somehow. So we're not even talking about freedom as a feeling or an experience that can be maintained. That's why I ended the meditation the way I did. You know, freedom is free. Freedom is free. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the fear remains as a temptation to invest in it. And I think that's, that's I'm going to speak as though everybody had this experience a little bit. <clears throat> Whenever we open, and there's, there's the, because freedom feels expansive. It feels open. You know, there's, it's, a, it's without borders. It's without boundaries. That's what makes it free. So we begin to feel expansive and open. And, and sometimes so much so that it feels as though your whole being is covering the entire universe, which it is. And what we'll observe then is this little contraction. It's like as in within the firmament of wide open space, there's something that's contracted, something that's small. And we, we can identify that as myself as I know myself. Myself as I usually am feels like a contraction of this expanse, right? And there's something about this contraction that has an allure. It has, a, it has a, some kind of power or gravity to it. Fear would be one way. Fear or desire, usually. And there's this impulse to want to pay attention to it. And the thing is, is if we don't pay attention to this, this is going to dissolve. This is going to, uh, like a drop of water evaporating in that space, it's going to dissolve. And it's going to become one with that space. And so there's often what will happen is in great experiences of expansiveness or freedom or openness, we'll become aware of that contraction as a fear or as a desire. And then there's some part of our attention that feels like it's necessary to pay attention to it. That actually happens just when we get distracted too. It feels like there's this important thing you have to pay attention to. But this is, of course, at a deeper level. And so the, I think the... Uh, the need is to see that if we don't pay attention to this, it's going to evaporate. And I think what makes that so threatening is that uh, it leaves what's going to happen as a complete unknown. You know, like, and, and specifically, I think, in, in line with the way you're saying it, is there's a f sense that. I need to keep some awareness of this fear or this desire lest it take me over, lest it catch me again, lest it bother me again. And so there's a kind of vigilance to it and attention to it. Are you with me on this? This is very subtle. It's good. I'm glad you're with me. This is subtle. And so there's a subtle attention to it, thinking that if I stay attentive to this, it won't catch me and limit me again. But it's already limited us then. It's already got our attention. You know what I mean? So the challenge is, is when you see that, that we, we don't, we see that temptation there to reach out and grab this fear or this desire, and we just let it evaporate, which is not easy. Because that means opening to, and often what it will produce is if you do that is a tremendous wave of anxiety or terror even, because it means you have no idea what's going to happen ever. And that's what comes with freedom, is that complete unknown, that complete mystery. And we're scared of that. Because for all we know, something bad could happen. We could get caught again. We could fall asleep again. We could become unaware again. We don't know. You know, but there's that moment, if you, call, if you would, it's a moment of choice. Will I invest in this again? Or will I leave it be? Think of it as like a, a wound on your arm, you know? It's starting to heal, and you're feeling really good about that. You've left it alone, 
And then you think, if I don't pick at that scab, this thing is never going to heal. And so you reach in and you scratch at it again. And you're like, oh shit, I made it bleed again. Now you have to leave it alone again. You know? And it starts, you start to leave it alone, it starts to heal, and you think, ah, oh, if I don't scratch that, if I don't get that scab off, and that's what we keep doing. We keep reaching for the scab, thinking that we're going to fix it, and that's the way we invest. You know, we invest again and again. And it's one of two things. It's desire or it's fear. It's either something we want or something we're afraid of that makes us reach back to take that up again. So the challenge is, is as that expansion is occurring and we see that normal grip of self, that normal contraction, to stay in the expanse and watch this self dissolve. And with that is going to come any number of conclusions in your mind about what will happen if your self dissolves. And you have to be able to ignore those assumptions. Because your mind will tell you, if myself, if myself dissolves, I won't be able to function. I won't know what to do with myself. I won't be able to work. I won't be able to drive my car. I won't be able to feed my kids. And so any number of assumptions are going to arise at that point. And there's this challenge then to stay with the expanse, to stay in the openness and let this little drop do what it does. Let it dissolve. That's part of why we actually practice meditation in a sustained or continuous way is to develop the wherewithal to handle a moment like that because it's not easy. It's not easy at all. What's easy is reinvesting. It's called reifying. Re-becoming re your ego. Re-becoming the desire. Re-becoming the fear. That's what's actually easy because it's so practiced. It's so habitual. Is that speaking to what you're saying? Yeah. It's a moment of burning. I often felt in moments like that, in moments of expanse, that if I didn't reinvest in my ego, I wouldn't know how to talk. Like, I wouldn't know how to speak. I wouldn't know what to say if I were in an interaction or something. And so there was this idea that I needed the fear in order to know how to speak, how to talk. And it's, I mean, I say it now, it sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous. But that it felt real. It felt like if I, without this investment, I won't know how to function. Because we've used our ego for so long as the centering center for our functioning, for how to be, who to be, what to be, you know? At that point, then, there's this invitation to function in freedom, to find out how your freedom functions how it moves in the world. Anything else? What else? You mentioned enlightenment. I know. Naughty of me, I'm sorry. Slippery topic. I wasn't going to ask about it. Um, and yet, everything that you're mentioning.
mentioning about inner freedom seems applicable to enlightenment, which makes me wonder what's the difference. I, I wouldn't say there is one. I'd say the only difference maybe is that um, if we conceptualize enlightenment as an experience, uh, then enlightenment and inner freedom are different. Because I would say there's a difference between the inner freedom that is always present in us. That's what I would call, the realization of that I would call enlightenment. And then there's enlightenment experiences that happen. You know, like you, you burst open or you have some profound realization or, you know, your mind goes absolutely quiet. And those can be enlightenment experiences. Um, and the difference, in my mind, there's no true difference between enlightenment and inner freedom. But if we define enlightenment by experience, there's a big difference. You know? Yeah, I notice I'm really attached to the idea that gradual enlightenment is possible. Mm -hmm. That it's something you can come back to again and again, like, like a breath, or, or mm -hmm. remembering that inner freedom is possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we tend to see it as, I mean, it's there's... binary. Like, like, oh, you're enlightened in that, oh, you're, you're, and then you're done. Right. Well, there's the sudden and the gradual ideas, right? The sudden enlightenment approaches, boom, you got it, and you're there forever. Or gradual, you're working on it, and you're gaining little by little on it. And in my experience, both are, are um, valid and both are false. Because in the sudden path, it assumes that there's a freedom that you didn't always have, right? As if it just someday, one day just happened, yeah. boom. You now have inner freedom where you didn't before. And in the gradual path, there's this idea that you're accumulating it when it's been here all along. And so I think where they come together, is, between seeing enlightenment as a singular experience and seeing enlightenment as the whole of your life, where they come together is, is in the now in realizing that inner freedom is the possibility now. And I think that's where these different schools of enlightenment, they miss the mark because they see it as something either as an achievement or as, um, they see it as an event happening in time. Something to aspire to. Yeah. And naturally, if you don't feel free, you aspire to freedom. But as, as many of the great teachings say, that wanting enlightenment is a big trap. Because wanting enlightenment's not a lot different than wanting a yacht. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, it's just what we call spiritual materialism. It's taking my desire for a yacht, because that yacht will make me happy. I'm gonna throw that out. I'm not a materialist anymore. Now I want enlightenment. But what's enlightenment? It's just a big inner yacht, is what it is, you know. And so it becomes something to pursue, something to. To chase after. In my experience, uh, enlightenment is, um, let's say, what, what should we say? In a way, it's cheap. Anybody can stumble upon a, uh, an experience of enlightenment. Honestly, it's not, it's not difficult to, to come upon an experience of enlightenment. What is difficult is to give your whole life to that. You know, I've seen many, 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 many people over the years wake up. I've seen very, 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 very few people devote their life to it. So in some sense, I would say that real enlightenment happens not in the experience, but in the, the full devotion of one's life to what they see and know. 
in such an experience, you know. Yeah, usually you caught me. I don't usually like to use that word. It's too loaded. It's a word. It is. I'd still rather be attached to like a, a yacht. Sure, <laughs> by all means. Well, it gives us a sense of process. It gives us a sense of self on some kind of journey somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and often what we do in that is because the notion of an enlightenment that is not something we can work on is too intimidating to our mind. Um, right. But I, there's a truth in what your, that teacher said because you know, what, what he calls an addiction in yoga, we refer to as, as attachment to gunas. It's like you get attached to, to greater and greater things until there's the final, like, the final thing, you know, and whatever that is, enlightenment maybe, where then that goes. But there is that. I mean, that's when a person is progressively evolving or, or maturing in their realization, that's what will happen for them is their attachments will become subtler and finer. Until there's none. Yeah. Yoga trumps whiskey. Not, not from a perspective of inner freedom, but from yes. the perspective of a journey, yes. Yes. And that's where, that's where people often misunderstand the enlightened beings, especially the enlightened beings who drink whiskey. Because if you're on the, if you're on the incremental journey toward enlightenment, you think, well, whiskey's in the way. Whiskey is not as evolved as meditation. But for the master, who has freed him herself of all attachments, there's no difference between whiskey and meditation, uh, which is, ooh, that's a slippery slope as well. That's the crazy wisdom world. You know, in that world, all rules of, of our logical mind do not apply anymore. But that's, you got it. I mean, there's an attachment. We trade that attachment to the yacht for an attachment to enlightenment. And then we trade the attachment to enlightenment for attachment to something else. And then finally, we get sick of the business of attachment and we realize the whole attachment itself is, you know, yep. Yep. I would have said certainly at one point that meditation was better than having a yacht. I can't say that anymore. I really can't. That doesn't mean I devote myself to going to pursuing a yacht, but I can't see one is better than the other. Next week, we'll all come with keys to our own yeah. yacht. <laughs> if, you, if you acquire a yacht, invite me on. <laughs> we can practice meditation together. <laughs> okay. Have a happy new year. Namaste. Namaste.